everyone. Welcome to Rising from <laughs> the Ashes. I'm Dan Unaki Dan. And I am the homie Romy. How are you? I'm good. What's good in the hood, dog? Oh, shit. Just over here chilling with my friend Vicky. Vicky. Vicky, you want to come say hi? Yeah, she does. She's going to come say hi. Is that okay? All right. Yeah. What's up, homie Vicky? Hello. Hello, Vicky. Who is this? Oh, hi. What's up, gangsta? Nice to meet you. Likewise. What's going down? I just um, stopped by to fill my van with some things. Oh, yeah? Yes. Hopefully not children. No. No. <laughs> just a little conspiracy joke. Oh, just kid. I just kid. I just kid. Ha, get it? Anyway. <laughs> what <are> you- <laughs> Very punny. What are you guys chatting about today? Uh, you know, we're talking about, uh, well, this is our intro for the titanic the titanic lies have you ever heard about uh the titanic i mean i watched the movie but no i i haven't heard really the probably history of it oh yeah well it's a fascinating one you so you should check out this episode i will yeah (laughs) i'm checking it out live i think it's already been recorded Oh, okay. You're not this, talking about it right now. You're just yeah. This is just the intro. This is just. I'm the messing intro. up your intro, guys. <laughs> ah, it's all good in the hood, man. We like to meet homies. Homies. Oh, you don't even know what he's saying. <laughs> all right, she's been kicked off, booted. Oh, I'm just kidding. Um, thank you. That was great. You're welcome. Sorry about that. Brother, hi. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that would be fun. She and has a she has a pretty voice for uh, radio. She does have a beautiful voice for radio. Yeah. Wow. Very sultry. Well, people can. Uh, um, I mean, now, not as sultry as us, but I mean, no, it's definitely. I mean, definitely. it's close though. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard, bro. I mean, we we won that award. Remember. That uh, sultry voice podcaster uh, sentiment oh, yeah. award. Did, oh. did I not let you know about I went to the award ceremony. I just the figured sultries? You, you didn't want to go. Yeah, it was the sultries. Oh, yeah. Well, because they actually impressive. nominated you, but then I went in place of your name. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> so I hope that's okay. I'm telling you now It's it was last night. Oh, okay. That's, that's fine, Roman. That's fine. Did you hear my jokes to her? They're pretty funny. I actually didn't hear any of it because I hadn't oh. heard the headphones. So it was so just a- she said. Uh, she said I just had a van. I came to pick up a bunch of stuff. I said, hopefully it's not children. And then uh, <laughs> she's like, no, it's not. And I was like, Haha, I'm just joking. I kid. I kid. I kid. Get it. Ah, he kids. He puts kids in vans. Wow. Why don't you just go to Disneyland already, bud? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they think about funny. all those athletes that are like, "I'm going to Disneyland." It's like, "Oh yeah, to get your, to get your." No, dude, I don't <laughs> see. I disagree with a lot of that shit. Good, wholeheartedly. good. I'm sure you I do. think. I think Disneyland is a happy place, and it's a fantastic, fun place. They got like 
Tomorrowland and and Space Mountain and Splash Mountain and, and it's all an introduction to transhumanism. Ah, dude, see, <laughs> I have a hard time with that too. Everything. What? I have a hard time with that. Oh my god. Okay, we're not the transhumanism. Going yes how does indiana jones have to do with transhumanism okay well you know no i just no well here's actually can i can i say something is sure. this a platform where i can speak freely obviously <laughs> <laughs> Woo! anyways so i was thinking about how we always basically repeat the history right repeat history in one way or fashion or another, and whether it's symbolically or literally, physically, or um, or any other way, and um, what what little uh, we know about you know an- ancient cultures and their and their high technology, these high technological uh, ancient civilizations, is that they were interested in heightening consciousness, right, and being able to download consciousness from you know, from gods and from the ether and from the, from the heavens. Right. And they were, they wore suits, they wore helmets. They had these, uh, these conductive metals with conductive crystals, right. Which is a almost kind of like a form of AI technology, merging humans with technology, a kind of transhumanism. It's always been an elitist goal and agenda. Right. But not in the sense of transhumanism that we know it here in the modern culture. Right. But what they do is they paint transhumanism as this way to to be able to tap into the collective consciousness quickly. Right. And and seemingly with no space in between. Um, So in my eyes, I I see it as like this kind of broad stroke of like, um, you know. Yeah. Do you understand? Do you do you feel me on that? A little bit of a stretch. I mean, maybe not like the word transhuman i get like you know merging yourself with spirituality as as a technology maybe back then and then maybe now it seems to be more of a mechanical merging and that's like transhuman as i know it more so than like i think merging yourself with spirituality is is what we are actually here to be doing i think that's uh natural Absolutely. What we are doing now is unnatural. So, uh, I, uh, yeah, so I wouldn't really call it transhumanism. No, no, I, no, I I get it. I wasn't saying it is transhumanism. Transhumanism, Transhumanism specifically is the word for like the modern indoctrination or merging of humans with AI. Yeah. Um, but I was just kind of using it as like a, a blanket term, as I do with a lot of things, you know, Yeah, uh, with flat earth. And no, no, because <laughs> it's not incorrect. It comes from a human mind, which is all things are crafted from that inside of the reality. So I have this, you know what? Damn you, Dan. Damn you to heck. All right, bud. Damn you. I mean, you can send me to hell. I'll go there. Oh, I know. You'd love to go over to the original Atlantean Helsinki fireboat goodness of uh, yeah, creation of it, the. Yeah. We should take a trip, and I, I, I see us want going to go soon. to hell. I really do. I'll see you in hell, honestly. <laughs> that we should definitely go to hell, and Let's we should go. definitely hit up Yake, and he can go with us. Let's burn in hell. Let's, Let's smoke some weed. Let's burn some fucking. <laughs> Weed and hell, dude. Yeah, dude. Let's take a picture of us, a selfie, burning in, in hell. hell. 
And we'll post it on the Insta. And we'll have make shirts out of it. Oh, Roman and Dan burning hell. Yeah, with Yake too. Yake with Yake, absolutely. And then we'll, absolutely. And then we'll have some delicious tea afterwards. Goodness gracious, I'm so down. Psilocybin tea. Yeah. Oh. No, I don't know about psilocybin tea, but damn, son. Hey, he said yes before he said no. So you guys uh, see how that works? See how that, I don't want to be munching verbal. on little forest penises, but hey, <laughs> teach their own. <laughs> yeah, so I, I know on the last episode we talked about Disney and shit, and I know you're you're still high on that train. Oh, but uh, so what 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 I believe about that whole Disney thing is is that, you know, you have people that get into the Freemasons and they use this knowledge and they put it into their movies and television shows and their books and stuff like that. Also say that uh, Tolkien and uh, the Lord of the Rings stuff is all esoteric cult knowledge. And you could say the same about Harry Potter and everything. And so, I mean, is it really esoteric? occult knowledge that's evil or is it esoteric occult knowledge that's trying to just teach you about you know the old ways and stuff like that and i, I think that's fascinating because we're, we we kind of gravitate towards it because i think it's actually part of our of our human lifespan you know it happened to us in our ancestry and so that's why we gravitate towards it because it, it seems like something is familiar you know in a way and and then along with like all the uh, the children stuff and stuff i, I mean uh, i think some of that stuff is just uh some people just try to throw that in there to make it seem more evil you know uh i, I would like to see some like full-on real information that actually talks about it that people don't just fucking make up because they want to demonize some shit yeah, yeah. Um, well, the back to that that question is that no, obviously esoteric and occultic knowledge is not see, like horrible, or um, but it what what is bad about it is the misinformation and the and the suppression of the information. So every human seemingly should have the right, and it shouldn't just be an elitist thing, right? Like you, I understand having to work hard and, and getting to obtain the information through like working goals and achievements, right? I understand that. But what I don't understand is the suppression. And we talk about that through suppression of history. Well, and the fact the that they're way. putting it into TV shows and, and into movies is not really suppression. It's teaching you about it. Well, it's it's um it's de- it's decide it's divisive uh in the means of having to hide it and weasel it in and uh, through these tangled webs and not have it be clear and clear and day and then having and people- you could also say that's because of the strong arm of Christianity and Catholicism and not uh, you know burning witches and shit like that and having to hide it purposely so that way they don't get destroyed. Or it could also have to do with the depopulation agenda. That being said, like making sure only a specific amount of the population get that information and the rest will die off because they weren't smart enough to figure it out. Could be that too. Yeah. Or observational well, enough. Not because that's thing not I'm smart enough to figure it out. You know, and hey, we're not we're not out here saying like if you don't get it, you're dumb, you're gonna die. But it's like they you know, and whether or not any of the predictive programming is real, um, I mean, there's a lot of people who think it is, and there's a lot of uh, 
of agendas behind the big, big money. And a lot of it all has to really boil down to is money and whose profits and what market it's, it's turning and you know, all of See, that. That's, that's what I do a, think a they use. I do think they use rituals. I do think they, uh, use the Zodiac and they use uh, certain dates and stuff to, uh, do things because it's easier to manifest things on those days or perhaps it has something to do with magic rituals yeah which they used yeah. to use magic with back then and they're still trying to do those same things today whether or not it's completely evil or if it's even good is you know kind of debatable because most people look through a christian lens of of jesus or whatever so anything that seems pagan seems to be like an evil practice or belief system and, you know, through looking at Box Saga and stuff like that, I've kind of kind of come to the conclusion that maybe like the pagan way is more so the natural way and that the Christian way is more so the materialistic way and the materialistic agenda. And so then when you look at what the agendas are, it seems more materialistic than natural. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder if maybe like they're not just trying to demonize Freemasonry because it seems like it could be evil yet it's what's trying to teach us about these constructive things about how to grow as a person and overcome ego and and that's what you see in the disney movies and stuff you know what i mean is Mm. you see how to overcome those types of uh trials Mm. and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and and they're giving it to children and order for them to have those tools so that they can grow up knowing how to overcome these obstacles to combat the Christianity that's also being uh, thrown at them. And so when you look at it that way, it doesn't seem so bad anymore, but then you get people that really hate this or really hate that. And they just want to make it sound as evil as they possibly can. And, you know, and then back to materialism and Satan and Enki, which we talk about with uh, Andy. So, yeah, it gets crazy, dog. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, but I'm I'm still on my kick. Yeah, I you didn't sway me. I know, I know, but that's what I'm saying, dude. It's hard. It's hard to decipher. There's so many different <laughs> ways you can look at absolutely, things. Absolutely, absolutely. And based on your 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 perspective, it can really change what what the meaning is. You know? Yeah. And, uh, I think as people, we we need to just have those open uh, conversations and perspectives because you know. I think we can all easily be fooled into believing some shit, you know, yeah. uh, that's not necessarily true. And, uh, who knows well, that's, what's that's true and, and what's false, you know? And that's what, you know, that's what we do here is we try to figure out what is what, right? Yeah. I'm steer away from other things that are just absolutely befuddling and, the in the realm because it's just too messy of a topic sometimes, you know, because we're both, we both like to have a lot of like research on our side when we do to look at things. So like, you know, specifically like the vaccine thing, we haven't covered that and we're only going to cover shit like that. If we have, you know, we haven't even talked freely about it because it's just not something that we're either <laughs> well researched in, you know? So it's not even that it's like, I feel with the vaccine thing, I feel like even just talking about the, you know, the coronavirus or the, covid and shit just saying it gives it that much more energy and power and uh if you just stop talking about it and nobody talks about it anymore 
then what would happen? It would just lose it. It would lose its power completely. But yeah, because fall, people, to the sidelines. especially like people like, uh, you know, certain podcasts that just keep talking about this COVID shit over and over again, it's, it's just doing the same thing. It's keeping that alive. And I don't want it to be alive. I just want it to fucking die, go away and have shit go back to the way it was. And so I don't even want to give it the acknowledgement, you know? And, and that's why I kind of don't really talk about it or want to talk about it is it, it just feeds the fuel. It's just fuel for the fire. Yeah. The fear mongering. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but information is uh, just to at least protect yourselves is out there and keep it, keep them out mind with things, you know? But I think that's why, that's why we talk about plant health mm. and how, how to do things that way without like saying, Hey, don't listen to this bullshit. Just like here. Here's some information about some things you probably didn't know. Yeah, here's some stuff. Maybe over try here. maybe try to do things more naturally and see where that leads you instead of doing things this way. You know? Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. it's saying here's a fucking carrot. It's up to you to take it or leave it, you know? And here's some hummus over here. Yeah. Instead of like saying, open your mouth and, and shoving the carrot down their fucking mouth. You know what I mean? Shut up. Baby carrots, though. Hey. Hey. It's getting huge carrots. That's fucked up, dog. <laughs> <sighs> uh, all, right, all right. What do we got? What do we got? R. R, R, R. F, F, F. F, F, T, 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 T. A, A, A. No. No. What you got for us today, homie? Oh, shit. RFTA News, we are back at it again with some plant medicine, my friends. Today we have one that I hope you have all heard of. What is it? Lepidium mani. Lepidmani. Lepidium mani? Maca. Maca root. Maca? Maca. Matcha? Have you heard of maca? No, not matcha. Maca. Maca. Maca is a tuberous. Haika haika ho. Um, it's really delicious uh, in culinary. Kind of tastes like caramel. Has like an earthy caramely taste. Really, made, like uh, vegan Snickers bars with it before. Oh yeah. Um, as the nougat and into the caramel. Um, but maca is a tuberous root that grows in high elevations of the Andes mountain range. Maca is also known as an adaptogen, broadly contributing to overall well-being and a healthy mood. According to folk belief, maca is an aphrodisiac, enhancing sexual drive in humans and domestic animals, which tends to be reduced at higher altitudes. Um uh, and in, in the animals, uh, maca is uh, in the brassicae family, um, and has a lot of other beneficial constitution uh, constituents that other members of the brassicae family, like broccoli, kale, cabbage, rutabagas, turnips, radish, and many more. Uh, maca grows wild and in cultivation in a naturally occurring variety of colors. Variation of color relates to the paradium or the outer covering. Uh, however, the majority of the biomass found in the core of the main mass of all maca looks the same. So it can be uh, beautifully rainbow, and then you're still going to get the same awesome maca benefits. Um, uh, 
in 2008, the Peruvian government decided to clarify the Andean people. Uh, oh, sorry, to clarify the confusion between the two scientific names that were used for maca, the Lepidium Mayani or the Lepidium Peruvianani, Peruvianum which has decided that El Peruvianum would be described to use as a cultivated type of maca grown in Peru only, only, and El Mani would use to be score, uh, described more of a wild type of maca. Which brings me into this other strange thing. So uh, seemingly maca was only ever historically grown in Peru. And we have, you know, maca going back some heavy dates like um uh you know you have uh and in 1549 Juan Tello de Satoy mayor reportedly received maca fruits as a tribute and used them to improve the fertility of cattle he imported over from Spain in 1553 Cieza de Leon explained the natives used certain maca roots for maintenance people's maintenance you know 16 uh 1600s uh it, it goes deep you know um but it goes into this other interesting rabbit hole i found that i'd never heard of before called biopiracy and biopiracy is it's called bioprospecting that exploits plant and animal species by claiming patents to restrict their general use so there's one man in peru that is holding it down for all of the maca farmers uh in peru because china was coming like China was coming and buying thousands and thousands of pounds of maca root because it was such a good aphrodisiac and good for fertility and health and maintaining a lot of uh, a lot of good just overall uh, human health. And but what happened is is they had patents specially on it, and they were trying to take the seed and grow it in China, which is um, considered biopiracy because there was patents on it, you know. And if they didn't have that patent. The Chinese would have grown it, and then they would have never came back, and all of these farmers would have basically been obsolete. Hmm. Um, so, you know, it has a deep history. Um, in 1964, it was the first time that maca was introduced, maca to a large-scale uh, international audience, but it wasn't widely accepted at that time. Uh, during the 1980s, maca cultivation reached record lows, but in the late 1990s, maca powder began to be used by the health-conscious doctors and people outside of Latin America. From 2000-2010, Peru's export of maca grew five times, making maca powder one of the country's top exports. So, it's good shit, man. Awesome, man. And it tastes maca, good. Machiavelli. Machiavelli, <laughs> yo, Machiavelli and root. I put it in my boot, and then I get a big uh, bone for the scoot. No, it's it's cool. It also has a lot of protein and fiber, so it's an adaptogen. Um, has protein. Maca, maca, maca. It's an aphrodisiac. Um, it helps with oxidative stress. Yeah, it's ja awesome. Maca. Ja, Jamaica me crazy, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Jamaican. Oh, Jesus Christ, dude. Please edit that out. <laughs> fuck. <laughs> fuck, dude. Uh, all right, man. Hey, this is a half hour. Let's just let's get into it with John Hamer, huh? Yeah, man. Uh, it's a good episode. Uh, Roman uh, had some technical difficulties oh, yes. in this one. And uh, it left me to kind of lead the conversation by myself <laughs> because he was having some 
pretty hardcore audio problems. Yeah, it was really bad. Um, I thought John was pissed at me the whole time or something. Yeah. And uh, since then, uh, Roman did another interview with John by himself while I was incapacitated and sick. So this is my episode with John. And then uh, we'll give you Roman's episode with John, which I am not in later on uh down the road coming up soon though don't worry don't worry we're gonna i think we're gonna put it out pretty quickly after this one uh yes. so be ready because we got a couple john hamer episodes coming at you this one is called titanic lies and it's about titanic and the banking cabal that you know kind of led to this whole thing and we, we cover many different things and um there's a little interesting tidbit at the end that we get into uh that i find fascinating as far as rituals go and uh we'll leave you to decide what you think about that so you ready son let's do it my my friend here we go here's john Hamer. John, John, Hamer, Hamer. Wake up. You're listening to Rising from the Ashes. You're listening to Rising from the Ashes. Just, just, just one, one other element, element. 
of the way that uh, Hello, everyone. Welcome to From the Ashes. I'm Danny Naki Dan. How is everybody doing? Today, we're here with John Hamer. Uh, how are you doing today, John? I'm good, thanks. How are you guys? Absolutely. Doing well, doing well. Good. It's hot in California, yes, huh, Roman? Is. Oh, my gosh. I had to get naked because. Yeah. Uh, is this coming through at all? You guys hearing any of this? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Yes. Sweet. It's not awesome. So John Hamer uh, has written multiple books. Awesome, amazing, deep, esoteric books um, that have gotten lots of great response. And in the podcast world, you talk a lot about your falsification of history and falsification of science books. Um, so we wanted to have you on today to, yes, talk about that, but to talk about your behind the curtain books, which is more about the history of banking. Um, and then, you know, hopefully kind of get into that kind of stuff. So you can get that out on the platform because it's super interesting and ties into, um, everything else. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm really stoked to have you on. Uh, I know, I know Dan boy is stoked to have you on too. And uh, would you just like to... That's great. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's good to be here. Yay. Appreciate it. <laughs> Again. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, John. Sorry, I, I didn't... Ca- I, I'm, I'm lost now because I, I didn't... I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. Oh, you didn't? Okay. Uh, you, can you... Can you not hear Roman very well? Not very well, no. It's just it's just like it was before. I thought it was a bit better at first, but actually it's not. Oh. So okay. I, I really don't know. <laughs> I know, I know. It's too <laughs> Sorry, I do apologize. Who dropped the mushrooms in? All right. Uh, all right, so thanks, John, for being here today. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background about when you started writing books? Because you kind of started late in your, in your life, later in your life. Yeah. Uh, so can you give us a little back history on what, what got you started into getting into these books and, and whatnot? And then give us a little description about some of the books and then we can get into, uh, the banking history and the Titanic. Sure. Yeah. Well, I've been, uh, I've been a geopolitical researcher and author for, uh, 24 years. Well, not an author for 24 years. I've only been writing for about 13 in total. Um, but, uh, my interest in all the, the geopolitical stuff began in, in 1997 with the death of Princess Diana. I had a friend at that time who was in Paris that night that she died and she'd been out for a, a, a dinner with, with her partner in the evening, gone back to her hotel room, switched on the TV. And the first images that she saw was of Princess Diana actually walking into the ambulance. Now, when she came back and told me this story, I was intrigued because the pictures that we actually saw were of her, well, there weren't any pictures of it, but we were told that she'd been carried into the ambulance unconscious. And then she died either in the ambulance, which, by the way, took about two and a half hours to go three miles, or she died on arrival at the hospital, but it's all very unclear. So that intrigued me. So that, that kind of got me into looking into things a bit more deeply. And and first couple of years, three years, I was just playing at it because I was still working. I'd worked in IT all my life. And then along came 9-11, which, you know, kind of really piqued my interest. I knew as soon as I saw those images that there was something not right. And um, it didn't take me long to, to dig into the rabbit hole a little bit and find that, yeah, sure enough, 
it was all another big psyop, a big scam uh, with an agenda behind it. So that kind of set me on the road to writing. I, did, I didn't write books at first. What I did, I wrote articles. I didn't have my own website either, so I wrote articles to various other websites, uh, some of which got published, and uh, I found that I really enjoyed it. And then a couple of months after 9-11, I actually got made redundant for my job, and I couldn't get another one. So that obviously gave me a huge opportunity to begin my research, which I did. And I started going down all sorts of different kinds of rabbit holes and finding out lots and lots of different bits of information. And as time went on, all the articles that I'd written, I kind of began to stitch them together and make uh, a book out of them, which was my very first book published in 2012, which was The Falsification of History. And that is just a series of different, uh, shall we say, historical events, but the real truth, truth behind those historical events and not the, the crap that were fed. Um, you know, so that kind of set me on the road and then I got a, a, a real big appetite for it. And, and as time's gone on, I, I you know, I, I managed to write seven books now. So falsification of history was my first one. And then um, I, I don't want to go into a massively long story about this, but what triggered my second one was that I actually did a, a YouTube presentation on, on the real Titanic story. As I had researched it, I spent three years researching it. And I got contacted by a Hollywood film director uh, who said, would you like to come over and talk to me? And I'd like to make a film about your version of the Titanic story. So I, I said, yeah, okay then. So I went over, this is cutting a very long story short, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. But uh, I went over there for two weeks, spent two weeks in Hollywood with this lady. Uh, the bottom line being that we couldn't get any producers interested in it, which is obvious, really, you know, knowing what we know about you know, the way these things work. Uh, but one of the things that I was told was that in order for them to even consider making a film, there had to be a book. So I wrote my next book, which is called RMS Olympic, which is the true story of the Titanic. And then when that was completed, I, I wrote it in record time. Uh, I was then told, no, it can't be a non-fiction book. It has to be a, a novel. So I've never written a novel before. I didn't know where to begin. But anyway, I had to go at it. And I wrote a third book, which was called Titanic's Last Secret, which was a novel based on RMS Olympic. So that was the story of my first three books. Uh, but the, obviously the bottom line was at the end, it, it never got made anyway. So, but at least I got two books out. And then following that, um, I spent about three years writing uh, my biggest book today, which is Behind the Curtain, which is a, a two-volume expose, as you say, of the banking industry. And uh, more importantly, not just about the banking industry and the fraudulent money system, but it also then expands greatly on all lots of historical events that have been influenced by the fact that the way that the banking system works enables them to generate money from thin air, which gives them the, the wherewithal to do virtually anything they want. And by using that methodology, they have actually twisted the world into the the way they, they want it to be, you know, in other words, to follow their own agenda. And that that's given the money and given them the money and the power to do that. So that that's the that's the principle behind behind the curtain. And then after going the curtain, I wrote a book on JFK, which looks at it from a totally different perspective. I looked at it from the British perspective. Okay. Uh, maybe not surprisingly, being a Brit. 
And, um, <laughs> you know, it's called JFK, a very British coup. And it just explains the involvement of the British crown and that. And, I, and I, by the British crown, it's not, it doesn't mean the royal family. The British crown is not the royal family. The British crown is the, the world financial empire, which is based in the city of London, as most people know. Um, mm-hmm. so that it, it was that kind of angle that I, I, I took on writing that book. And I, as far as I know, it's kind of a unique space on it. I don't know anyone else that's done, done it from that sort of angle. So that, that, you know, that's quite an interesting one for anyone who's, Who's, who's looked at the Kennedy assassination, but can't quite piece it all together in their heads. Um, and then my last book, uh, the most recent one, which was published in February this year, is called The Falsification of Science, which actually takes all the basic premises of science, rips them all to pieces, and puts forward an all totally alternative view of the world. And I include in that, I included in that book everything that's going on at the moment with the um, scandemic that we're currently suffering under. Um, so, yeah, that, that's kind of in a nutshell my uh, my bibliography to date. Um, there is another book in the pipeline, which I'm co- co-authoring with um, a lady over your neck of the woods, um, who I mentioned off air before. And, uh, you know, we're writing a book on what's happening right now, the world situation right now, and where... If these people get their own way, which we, we sincerely hope they don't, uh, where it's going in terms of uh, artificial intelligence and transhumanism and all the rest of it. Oh, there you Everything go. that's planned for us. Um, many say it's going to happen, but this is what the plan is for. So that, that's, that's up to date on my, uh, on the book situation. Excellent, yeah, so, man. Yeah. Uh, can I, can I ask you a question about the Princess Diana thing? Of course. Is, uh, when we were, I was watching Oprah and, uh, it had, uh, Prince, uh, Harry. Is it Harry? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Meghan Markle on there. And they were talking about how the, the royal family was kind of against her having a baby, uh, because she was brown skinned and yeah. maybe racial, it had some racial connotations to it. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was very interesting because, they also mentioned that we're going to have a Princess Diana situation all over again. And I was like, what, what is, what does that have to do with Princess Diana? And so I looked up like how she died or pe- what people were thinking. Yeah. And it was because that she was involved with some like, uh, prince from the Middle East or something. And yeah, the, not a prince, but a, a guy uh, called Dodi Al Fayed, who was um, of Middle Eastern origin. His father yeah. was a was a big, uh, well, still is a uh, big player in the financial side of things in Britain. He owned uh, uh, a department store in London called Harrods. Oh, it did, did at that time. Uh, it doesn't. Okay, he sold it since. But he, he's, he's a billionaire. He's a very very rich man. Is that the same as the Harrods in Las Vegas? I don't know. I didn't know there was a Harrods in Las Vegas, but yeah, it could well be. It's a very, very, uh, expensive, exclusive department store. All right. Yeah. Um, so it could well be. Um, but yes, she was involved with this guy who was a Muslim, a Middle Easterner by birth. Um, and it didn't go down very well, obviously. And I think that's, that's kind of what I didn't see the Oprah interview, but I, I guess that's what they were referring to. 
Yeah, uh, it just I just kind of confused me because I didn't I never heard about that part of Princess Diana. You know, it just seemed okay. uh, I was young when it happened. I guess so. Yeah. I, I just assumed she died in a car crash and there was some weird things going on. But once I heard that, I was like, oh, that's what it's all about. It's all yeah. about yeah. bloodline. So do you, do you uh, have you looked into bloodline stuff at all? Yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, in behind the curtain, I go into huge detail about the different uh, bloodlines and how they, you know, they they rule the world. You know, people think that politicians rule the world, but of course, we know that's not true. Um, you know, mm. the, it, it's the billionaire bloodlines that that run the world. They control the politicians through bribery and coercion. Excellent. Um, maybe maybe we should get you back on and talk about these things too. Sure. Uh, what kind of what are the subjects that you bring up in the falsification of history? Like, what part of history has been manipulated? Oh. Just, br- just briefly, yeah. Uh, maybe what, like, what big things in history have been manipulated that you explain in in the book? Oh, okay. Well, it's a huge long list. I will, I will give you a brief. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Brief synopsis. Just, of it. just a cu- just a couple of them. Yeah. Okay. Um. Well, now then, yeah, things like, um, you know, the, 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 obviously I go into specifics about specific incidents, but then there's a more general approach like evolution, for example, you know, the real origins of the human race, again, the ancient bloodline, mm. Freemasonry, the New World Order, you know, all that. Oh, stuff. wow. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Scraping the surface, you know, so that's not, uh, you know, that's not even... You know, Knights Templar, secret societies. Ooh, yeah, that's where I, that's where I get going. Yeah, Knights yeah. Templar, that's my thing. <laughs> yeah, you know the uh, you know I, I touch on American history as well. You know, which obviously of interest to American listeners and World War Two, World War One. You know, the, the whole the whole whole of the twentieth century is just basically a uh, a fabricated construct. I mean, obviously that those things actually happen. But they didn't happen for the reasons and in the way that they tell us. And that's, uh, you know, then I, then I go on to the moon landings, Georgia Guidestones, you know, it's just a oh. 11, 7, 7 London tube bombing, you know, talk about half and, uh, you know, that's half with two A's, you know, uh, Fukushima, yeah. chemtrails. Um, yeah, it's pretty complicated. Everything, huh? <laughs> It's a whole casserole of conspiracy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> All right, that's perfect, man. So, yeah. Uh, can you get into a little bit of the history of of banking for us before we get into the whole Titanic debacle? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, again, it's a very long and sordid story, but I'll do, I'll do my best to do a, a kind of synopsis of it. I mean, that the entire world monetary system is based on on deception, and I guess an integral mm-hmm. part of that deception is centers around the word usury, which has been redefined uh, as to what it was a few hundred years ago, and it's today defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as the action or practice of lending money at unreasonably high rates of interest. However, originally, it was just simply the action or practice of lending money at interest. So any interest whatsoever, not the, as it's become to be known now, the 
the unreasonably high rates of interest. Any kind of interest at all is usury. But they've kind of subtly covered that in an Orwellian redefining of the word. But I think it's extremely important to point out that it's the, it was the advent of the central banking system that's enabled the world to be taken over by the current rulers, the so-called elite or Illuminati or the powers that shouldn't be, as some people call them, you know, the interlocking <laughs> group of trillionaires who control world events. But mm-hmm. the biggest deception that the banks and financial institutions carry out is the ability to create money from thin air and then charge this extortionate interest on it, injury. So what do I mean by this exactly? Um, by plucking money, creating money out of thin air. For those who are not aware, I'll, I'll explain it. Suppose you apply for a, I don't know, $100,000 loan or mortgage, say, or any other sum for that matter, it doesn't have to be 100000 it can be anything. You know, it really doesn't matter to them. The bank doesn't take that sum from their account and physically move it across to yours. They just create that amount in, amount in your account by computer keystroke. So in, in other words, they don't actually suffer any loss from doing that. So they're just creating that money out of thin air. It's like you and I going going into our own bank accounts and, being, and having the ability to key in whatever figure we like into our online account. And then, of course, in effect, mm-hmm. you pay them interest. And over a 20-year period, that will amount to about four times the amount borrowed. But you pay the interest on money that never existed in the first place. Uh, and then, of course, you don't, if you don't pay them, they'll take your house away or your car away or whatever. Uh, and... and and these are things that do actually physically exist, whereas the money is just thin air, basically. Uh, and of course, this made them wealthy beyond our wildest dreams, anyway. The extent that money is literally no object whatsoever and allows them the wherewithal to really do as they please and mold the world into the shape that they want it to mold to be. And this is exactly what's happened, especially through the 20th century with the advent, specifically of the Federal Reserve Bank. You know, before that, America had no national debt. The government was in control of, of uh, producing the money. Uh, but uh, ever since the Federal Reserve Bank came onto the scene, and we will go into that in a little bit more detail later, um, okay, good. that the, um, you know, the, the, the power to create money has been taken away from, from the U.S. government. It's in private hands. You know, a lot of people don't realize it, but the Fed is a private concern. You know, it's got, it's got stockholders. It's got people who own it, and they charge interest on every dollar they produce on behalf of the government. Uh, so it's a real, real scam. Uh, I want to read a quote out of this point from Thomas Jefferson, which I think is very relevant. And he said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and the corporations which grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people for whom it properly belongs. And I just think that's a really powerful statement and it just sums it all mm. up. You know, obviously Thomas Jefferson knew what was what. Um, see, the, the, it, when you, when you hear these economists and financial talking heads on TV and radio continually try to sell us the idea that recessions and depressions, the boom and bust cycles are a natural part of what they call 
the economic cycle. However, this is absolutely not the case. Recessions and depressions only occur because the central bankers constantly manipulate the money supply upwards and downwards artificially and by design in order to ensure that more and more ends up in their hands and less and less in the hands of the people. Now, let me just talk a little bit about the history of the central banks. Where did they come from? They actually began with the ancient money changers in history. Mm. And it's with these people that the indictment of modern-day bankers begins. Uh, at the moment, the Rothschild family, who many people have obviously heard of, owns mm-hmm. every single central bank in the world except for three, and that is Syria, Iran, and North Korea. Now, what Those are the ones we're trying to go to war with. <laughs> Absolutely. Got it in one. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, anybody who stands up to them and their power would just destroy them. You know, um, going back into history, in the 1830s, Andrew Jackson, he, he cancelled the contract of the first bank of the United States, which was the first American central bank, you know, uh, predating the Fed. Uh, that was in the 1830s. And what happened to Andrew Jackson? Well, he was almost assassinated. He was just very lucky that the guy's pistol jammed, um, as we stood about six feet from him. Uh, so he survived, but that was a, that was definitely an attempt by the uh, by the Rothschilds to uh, do away with uh, Andrew Jackson. And going back even further in time, in 48 BC, Julius Caesar of Rome, he rescinded the power to create coinage from the money changers, and instead he minted coins for the benefit of all the citizens of Rome and its, and its empire. And with this new, now plentiful supply of money, he, sta- he established lots of many lots of publicly beneficial projects and institutions and built new houses and public buildings. And by making money more plentiful and using it for the benefit of everyone, except for just a small exclusive clique, he won the love and the respect of the ordinary Roman people. But I think, you know, we know what happened to Julius Caesar. Unfortunately for him, the money changers obviously despised him and swore bloody revenge on him. And this eventually ended in his assassination. Um, by Brutus and his senatorial co-conspirators, who were in reality were in, in, in the pay of the money changers. Then immediately after the assassination of Julius Caesar, the Roman money supply was reduced by 90%, which immediately resulted in increased taxation and eventually in the loss of individual savings, lands and homes. You know, much as what goes on today, in fact. So, you know, this is, we're talking 2000 years ago and nothing ever changes. And then again, coming a little bit more closer to the present day, Abraham Lincoln, he attempted to issue currency, the greenbacks, which again, some people may have heard of, outside of the central banking system, uh, as did JFK. JFK issued executive order 11110 uh, a couple of months before he was assassinated. And we all know what happened to both those guys. You know, they're both went up against the bankers. I mean, it was a lot lot more complicated story than that, but that was the essence of it. And even Adolf Hitler closed down the Reichsbank in the 1920s, started his own interest-free currency created by the government, and he was subsequently, obviously, ruthlessly vilified and destroyed as a result of that, you know, directly as a result of that, despite all the other crap over here around that. So, by around 1000 AD, so we're talking, you know, a thousand years ago, 
the money changers gradually acquired control of the medieval money supply. And by this time, they become known a little more, perhaps respectably, as goldsmiths. Um, and the story of modern money really began in Renaissance Europe about 500 years ago. At that time, the currency consisted mainly of gold and silver coinage, no paper money at all. And obviously, mm-hmm. gold coins were very durable and had intrinsic value in themselves, unlike paper currency, which was obviously valueless. You know, it's, it's just a promise to pay a certain amount of gold. That's how paper, paper currency began. But the problem with gold coins, of course, was that they were heavy, difficult to transport, in large quantities, and they were open to theft, if not stored securely. So, as a result of this, the general population deposited their coins with goldsmiths who have strong rooms and safes in which to store the coins securely and without fear of theft. And then the goldsmiths issued paper receipts, which became our bills of exchange, our, no- our currency notes, mm-hmm. um, yeah. which could be redeemed at any time for the stated amount of gold. And eventually, these convenient receipts began to be traded themselves instead of the less than convenient bulky coins they represented. But, and this is where it gets really interesting, with the passage of time, the goldsmiths realized that only around 10% of these receipts were ever redeemed at any one time. And so they could quite comfortably lend the gold in their possession at interest time after time as long as they ensured that they retained the 10% of the value of their outstanding loans in actual physical gold to meet the possible demand. And so by this process, paper money, which, as I said, is in reality receipts for loans of gold, was born. Notes could now be issued and loans made in amounts that were up to 10 times their actual gold holding. And at interest rates of 20%, same gold could be lent 10 times over yielding a 200% return every year, and this was backed by gold that didn't even exist. But of course, the goldsmiths weren't stupid. They were very careful not to overextend themselves. But the result of it was that they became very wealthy at the expense of the rest of us, without producing anything at all of intrinsic value. And this just carried on and on and on. And since only the principle was lent into the money supply, more money was eventually owed back in principle plus interest than the people as a whole possessed. So they had to continually take out loans and new paper money to cover the shortfall, causing the wealth of the villages and towns and eventually that of the entire country to be diverted into the vaults of the goldsmiths, who became fabulously, incredibly wealthy. And at this point, their identity had now become bankers, while the country began to systematically drown in debt. And this was, in fact, the birth of what we know as know now as fractional reserve banking, which means that the bankers are, are able to make astronomical amounts of money by loaning out what are essentially fraudulent receipts, because they represent gold that the goldsmiths didn't even possess. And as they gradually became more confident that their game would never be discovered, um, they would then loan out up to 10 times the amount they held in their deposits. So, you know, they soon discovered that this control could be extended even further and it, it gave them total control over the economy and the assets of almost the entire country. And they kept switching between high and low volumes of currency in circulation at any given time. 
Uh, and the way that they do that, and they still do it this way today, is that they make money easier to borrow, uh, thereby increasing the amount of money in circulation. And then suddenly, without warning, they'll limit the money supply again, removing it from circulation, making more difficult loans more difficult to obtain, or, or suspending loan conditions of loans altogether. And why did they do this? Simply because they knew that the result would be that a large percentage of their debtors would be unable to repay their loan, loans, and being denied the facility to take out new ones, they would then become bankrupt and be forced to transfer their assets to the bankers, goldsmiths, for a small fraction of their true worth. And this is exactly what happens in the world economy of today. But it's deceptively referred to as the economic cycle, boom and bust, recession and depression, in order to give it a more respectable sounding, you know, name. Um, and it, it's always, but it's always portrayed as being a natural cycle of events rather than what it is, which is completely controlled, total and utter scam. So. All right. Uh, yeah, uh, that goes into the, the whole maritime thing and the whole trading and merchants, uh, kind of goes into the name of, of the banks, right? Because they would, they would put the banks up on the banks of the river. And the currency yeah. is the currency of, or the flow of the river. Uh, and it right. all has to do with maritime laws, uh, right. even, even in everything. Uh, That's right. yeah, they- uh, uh, Roman's having a little trouble getting through. He says he can hear us. Uh, he's having some that technical difficulties. Uh, okay. he, he can hear us, but he can't talk. Or say anything. So he had a question, which was, uh, do you think the separation of Federal Reserve and the American government is more of a cover up to give less responsibility or causation of the U.S. government because they obviously lie in bed together? Um, it's an interesting question, but, um, <laughs> yeah, I can't answer it really. I, it's, it is an interesting question, and, it, and it's quite possible. But I don't, I don't think it's a very easy relationship between the Fed and the government. I, I actually think that, yeah, the, the, the Fed are given an easy ride by the government, uh, but only because they've, they've basically the Fed has got the uh, government's arm right up its back. Um, you know, that's what I believe. I, I don't, I don't believe that it is, it is a kind of a, a cozy little relationship at all. I think that the Fed actually. You know, have a huge, huge sway over the government, and the government are powerless to do anything about it. Personally, I, you know, I could be okay. wrong. I've been wrong. One question I had was: uh, all the richest resources come from the continent of Africa, and I've heard that every time they set up a bank in Africa, something happens where they aren't allowed to and you would think the richest yeah. country in the world would be able to have a bank do you have any deeper knowledge about that because i i, I don't i'm kind of i just know yeah. that much about it honestly yeah well a, a little a little story you know of uh everyone knows what happened in libya recently with colonel, uh, colonel gaddafi um yeah, Gaddafi. The, uh, what happened was, I mean, the reason, the reason why Libya was so vilified and, and, and that the, uh, the US Army went in there and, and all the rest of it was because Colonel Gaddafi set up something called the Gold Dinar, 
which he he he, um, he actually coerced, not coerced, but he, he actually convinced that all the other African countries uh, it would be a good idea to stop selling their gold in dollars and use this gold dinar currency they were setting up, which it, it actually bypassed again, it bypassed the Fed. And, uh, you know, this is, it wasn't the sole reason, but it was a very powerful reason why um, why the U.S. went into Libya and, and got rid of Gaddafi. Uh, you know, that whole story is covered in, in, in one of my books too. Uh, and it's a very, very sad story. And it, Colonel Gaddafi was not the, not the tyrant dictator they report portrayed to be by the Western media in any way, shape or form. Gaddafi was, you know, was loved by his people. He used to wander about in the, in the crowds freely. They, they loved him. You know, anyone who, uh, can you just imagine a U.S. president walking around freely in, in, in the crowds in the States? Uh, you know, it, it wouldn't last two minutes. <laughs> you know, someone would be, uh, punching a gun at him. Uh, but Gaddafi used to do it all the time. So it was loved and, and, um, he used to share the wealth of the country with his people. You know, the, the things like the literacy rate was raised, you know, massively while he was in power. He, he used to give people 50% interest-free loans on cars and, you know, uh, uh, sorry, he used to, he used to contribute 50% towards the cost of cars. You know, the cost of, uh, gas, um, gasoline over there was, you know, pennies, uh, for the, on the gallon. And, and it, it just absolutely was a, was a hero to his people. So all this, all this Western propaganda that we hear about him being a tyrant, they had to be put down at all costs. is just basically nonsense. And again, I do cover that in the book. But yes, I've kind of wandered off the topic a little bit. I do apologize. But that was just one example of, of how they, yes, no, that's not, they put, they put down is that anyone in the, who tries to Is that in the falsification of history book? Uh, I, I think so. Yes, it might, it might be in behind the curtain. It's in one of the two. I can't remember now. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's, <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, I think it's in the, what do you, no, I think it's in the behind the curtain because, it happened after the falsification of history was published. So yeah, I think it's been behind the curtain now. Okay. Why do you think they don't want a a centralized bank in Africa? What what is the big deal about that? Why doesn't do you who talk wants about that in bank? there? Uh well there's obviously so, people why that don't want so, uh, say Illuminati or New World Order, they're obviously yeah. stopping right. from a, a central bank from happening in Africa, right? Um, not quite. Because it's I mean, the, it's the richest resources. There's, okay, so what, what type of bank is it that they're not letting get off the ground in Africa then? Because it, okay. it now, there's something to that. I can't. Gaddafi was trying to bypass the the, the Rothschild central banking system. There are central banks. Ah, uh, so he was trying to go around them. them. He to, yeah, he was trying to bypass them. Yeah. Which again is and the same old story that I was telling you about. Yeah, JFK, Lincoln, all the rest of it. Yeah. Uh, okay, gotcha, gotcha. That makes more sense. All right, uh, let's get into the Titanic stuff. Uh, how does okay. uh, this all start out? Sure. Well, as uh, as you kind of implied, there's a massive connection between the Titanic and the uh, the formation of the, of the Fed in 1913. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, Titanic 
the Titanic disaster happened in 1912, and the Fed was formed in 1913. Uh, in my book, RMS Olympic, which is the real story of the Titanic and not the um, not the uh, James Cameron story that we see in the in the film. Um, in that book, I describe uh, an intrinsic connection between the sinking of the Titanic and the formation of the Fed. Fed. Um, uh, it started in about 1910. Uh, seven men representing various U.S. financial interests met incognito on a, on a, in a place called Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia uh, to hatch a plan to usurp the power to create money from the American government. Uh, the result of this was going to be the Federal Reserve Bank, uh, which is the equivalent of the Bank of England in the UK and all the other central banks. But America, strangely enough, was quite late to the party. Um, it had one or two, uh, I got two other attempts at forming a, a central bank uh, prior to the Fed, but they were both failures. Um, they, they didn't work out for one reason or another. So they were, they were pretty late to the party. But anyway, in the early 1900s, a group of high financiers decided that it was time to try again. So... Uh, but this plan wasn't without strong opposition. There was strong op- opposition from certain mega-rich uh, U.S. guys. Um, in particular, there were four extremely wealthy men who were totally opposed to the Federal Reserve plan. And this was um, John Jacob Astor, uh, Benjamin Guggenheim, Isidore Strauss, and a guy called Charles Lindbergh Sr. Now, Charles Lindbergh Sr. was the father of the famous aviator, you know, Charles Lindbergh Jr. So it wasn't the son, it was the father. And they weren't opposed because they thought, you know, they were looking after the interests of the people, uh, but because they knew that the Fed plan would mean soaring inflation, which is obviously what happens when you get, you know, a situation where you can create money out of thin air and, and charge extortionate interest on it. And also that mm-hmm. built in debt, because don't forget every single dollar that the Fed produces, it charges the American government interest on it. And that interest is passed down to the people, and you pay that back in the, in, the, in terms of taxes. And that's how the debt to the Fed is paid. You know, the, your, your income taxes don't go, surprisingly, to a lot of people. Your income taxes don't go to pay for services, they go to uh, finance the Fed. They go to pay the interest to the Fed for all the currency that they produce. Anyway, that's digressing quite. So, anyway, these, these four guys, they, they created this strong resistance movement, which was beginning to win the battle against the Fed. Uh, you know, the people who were planning the Fed. And interestingly enough, three of these men died on the Titanic. Coincidence? Well, I'll let you all decide individually. Um, what actually happened, uh, was these, the the um, the publicity about Titanic's maiden voyage was designed to lure uh, the rich and famous in great numbers. You know, the, the maiden voyage was really hyped up by a guy called J.P. Morgan of you know banking fame, who was behind the partly behind the Fed plan. He actually was the owner of the Titanic, or he was the owner of the shipping line that owned Titanic. The White Star? The White Star Line, in fact, yes, which was the um, shipping line that, that uh, owned and ran the Titanic and its sister ships. Um, and J.P. Morgan, 
uh, maybe unsurprisingly, mysteriously failed to show at Southampton docks in time for the departure of the ship, along with around 50 of his friends and colleagues. Um, you know, so my contention is that this is how we lured uh, Astor, Guggenheim and Strauss aboard by personal invite and by booking a passage for himself as well. Okay. Um, so, but mm-hmm. of course, he, he never went on the main voyage. He sent a, a telegram to the captain of the Titanic about half an hour before the ship was due to sail, saying that it changed his mind and he wasn't on the bo- wasn't coming on the voyage after all. And that, as I say, along with fifty of his friends and colleagues who decided at the last minute not to go. How convenient, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so what happened was those three people all died on the Titanic. Which is a bit strange that they all died. You can maybe understand one of them dying, but they all died uh, in a situation whereby very, very few first class passengers actually died on the Titanic. Like 90% of the of the deaths on the Titanic, or even more, maybe 95% of the deaths on the Titanic were crew, third class, and second class passengers. First class passengers were hardly affected at all, but these three guys. Coincidentally, he said tongue in cheek, we all died. Now, and that's, that's because, uh, the people who had less money had, uh, like bottom floor tickets to yes, the, exactly. to the ship, right? Exactly. And so, yeah. so when it got hit, struck or whatever happened, yeah, it sunk and those people kind of drowned, but the richer people were more on the top levels or the deck area and they yeah. were able to, survive and jump off yeah, but these still these three people still ended up dying even though they had a better chance of surviving absolutely well you put it succinctly there thank you yeah um okay yeah because a lot of the um the third class passengers specifically were, were actually locked down below they couldn't actually get out uh you know the mm-hmm. doors were locked so they were just left into their fate and the, and the lifeboats filled with filled with mainly first class passengers but Obviously, some some second class and third class ones survived, but there were very very few comparatively people. So yeah, um, it's it, you know so, and, and then what happened after um, after the Titanic incident? Basically, the the opposition to the Fed collapsed because these three guys, along with Guggenheim, uh, along with um, uh, Lindbergh, who wasn't on the ship, um, these three guys were, were the main protagonists and without them the whole thing just collapsed and uh, Lindbergh was given two million dollars to back off which is what he did obviously I mean two million dollars is a lot of money today but in 1913 you look you're talking like 200 million dollars that, that kind of you know that kind of sum so you know who wouldn't be uh, who wouldn't be uh, convinced to uh, back away by that kind of a sum it would take a very very moralistic man to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, I mean, this led, this then obviously led the way to the, to the Fed being formed. Um, so that's in a nutshell, very small nutshell. That's how the t- Titanic incident was connected to the, the, the Fed Rev. Um, okay. Yeah. But I mean, overall, that was, a, I think Morgan, JP Morgan was actually killing two birds with one stone. Because the other element to the Titanic disaster was the fact that it was a huge insurance scam, and it wasn't Titanic mm. that sank at all; it was its twin sister, Olympic. And uh, you know, I, 
I proved that in my book, you know, and I think I could prove it beyond all, all shadow of a doubt uh, with the information that I unearthed over, over three years of researching it. Um, so it, it kind of killed through both on Stone Morgan. I think he saw an opportunity, he's a very opportunistic kind of guy. Um, and I think he saw the opportunity to kill two birds with one stone. So he got the insurance payout for the Titanic, uh, the, um, Olympic, which had been severely damaged, uh, a few months earlier in, in a massive collision with a British warship. Uh, and from that yeah. point on, it had been, it was un- uninsurable. So the, the cleverly switched the identities of the two ships, but they were kind of similar, you know, almost identical. Uh, to, to begin with, but they spent some time changing it so that the um, ships became identical, and then they switched the names, and they sank Olympic as though it was Titanic, and the original Titanic carried on as the Olympic. Um, otherwise, they would have, they would have lost millions in insurance payouts, and not only that, they had to pay money out for the damage to the warship as well because the accident was deemed to be crew of the Olympic fault. So yeah, I mean Morgan was actually facing the loss of not just the ship, but of the whole shipping line uh, if, it, if, if that ever happened. So I think it was just an elaborate plot to, um, you know, as I say, kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, can you kind of talk about the captain of the Olympus ship? Uh, Olympus. He was involved, uh, the Olymp- sorry, the Olympic ship. Yeah. I have in my notes Olympus because... Uh, when me and Roman were talking, we, it, it was kind of interesting, uh, comparison because, uh, you have Georgia in the story. You have Atlantis being the Atlantic Ocean. You have Olympus, like Mount Olympus. Mm-hmm. So the Olympic ship, you yeah. have an iceberg. So you have all these northern, like Atlantis motifs right. within the whole story of the Titanic. And yeah. we thought it was like kind of like a weird connection, and I was going to bring that up. Yeah. And so I was looking at the word Olympus, and I said that. But okay. Uh, can you talk about the captain of the Olympic, and kind of like how he was kind of like a, a rogue kind of guy? He he, yeah. he was in many different accidents with Absolutely. the Olympic. Correct? Yeah. Well, you're right. I mean, the, the, the captain of the Olympic was the same person as the captain of the Titanic because. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah, it was Captain, um, Captain Edward Smith. And he was the senior captain in the White Star Line, what's called the Commodore of the White Star Line, the senior captain. And he was a very, very reckless guy. He'd been involved in lots of accidents, you know, uh, not just on the, before the Olympic was even built, because the Olympic of the two twin sisters, the Olympic and the Titanic, the Olympic was the first one off the production line. So Titanic was still being built. Olympic was launched in about, uh, I think it was March 1911. And between that and the Titanic accident in April 1912, the Olympic was involved in four, uh, incidents that, that you kind of alluded to there. Um, yeah. first one was it, it on its main voyage, uh, leaving New York Harbor. It, uh, it ran into a sunken wreck. No, sorry, I beg your pardon, that was the second one. The first one was on entering New York Harbor on its maiden voyage. It actually had a collision with a tug and demolished the tug. Um, Fortunately, there was no one killed uh, or injured, but uh, the damage to the tug, well, the tug was just a complete wreck. 
Um, and then on another voyage, as I mentioned, when it was leaving New York Harbor, it was only a few weeks later, it, uh, it, it uh, collided with a sunken wreck, which ripped the propeller off. And, um, you know, it, it had to limp back all the way across the Atlantic, back to Belfast, where to the dry dock in Belfast, which was the only dry dock in the world big enough to take it. And, but the problem was, without the, one of the propellers, it, the ship was very unbalanced and, and it caused a lot of vibrational damage to the ship, even though they, they took it very slowly going back across. It caught, this was the start really of the problem. There was a lot of vibrational damage to the ship. A lot of rivets were popped. The plates were separated. You know, the, the, on the, um, on the hull, on the ship's hull. And then, uh, another incident, it, uh, it threw a propeller again. Again, uh, near New York Harbor. And, uh, so that was three. And then the fourth one and, and the one that put the final nail in its coffin was the collision with, uh, HMS Hawk, which is a British battleship. And, uh, mm-hmm. HMS Hawk had a, a huge battering ram on the front of it. And it hit, uh, hit RMS Olympic broadside and caused a huge amount of damage. I mean, the, the, the battleship went right into the innards of RMS Olympic. And the result, it's cut a long story short, the, the result of that collision was that Olympic's keel was twisted, as well as doing massive damage to all the steel plating. Uh, you know, it was a, I've got a picture in my book of the, the actual hole in RMS Olympic and it was, it was pretty big and pretty serious. I mean, it took them, it took them two weeks to patch up the hole, uh, enough for it to just limp back to Belfast, get proper, uh, uh, you know, proper repairs. And those, those repairs took several months. It was that bad. But I think what happened was when they actually inspected the ship, they realized that the damage was far worse than they originally thought because the keel was twisted. And I spoke mm-hmm. to a few maritime people, uh, sea captains, and they all said the same thing. And that was a damaged keel to the wrecked ship. And in actual fact, RMS Olympic was declared, officially declared a wreck. Which meant that it would never ever go to sea again. But we got around that by switching the identities of the ships, and uh, and that's what saved Morgan's skin basically. Um, but I think, as I said before, he used that. Um, he, he thought, wouldn't it be a great idea if we sink the sink uh, Olympic as Titanic, claim the insurance money, and then we're you know then we're home clear. Uh, which and exactly and that's because. That's because they tried to file for the insurance. Correct. Uh, and the insurance company denied their claim. Correct. Saying they're, they're at fault. So they weren't going to get the insurance yeah. money. Yeah. So they, so they repurposed the Olympic as the Titanic Correct. to bring it back out, knowing that it had lots of failures already. Yeah. And then put people on, on the ship that they knew had uh, ties to the Federal Reserve because that was also a back problem for them. That's right. So they put them on the ship also, sent it out to sea because they knew that it was possibly going to wreck. And yeah. and E.J. Scott, uh, E.J., what's his name? The, yeah. E.J. Smith knew this route already. He had already traveled this route with the Olympic, correct? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And so he, so he knew, he should have known where these ice fields were and so on and so forth. Exactly. And so they switched it out uh, 
in part to collect the insurance claim because now it was supposedly a brand new ship, even though they just made it. They had, I heard something to do with, uh, they, they put new carpeting in, uh, to, to disguise the linoleum so it wouldn't yeah. look like the old ship. Yeah, because the, the, the linoleum was scuffed. You know, it had scuff marks on it and it wouldn't, wouldn't have looked like a new ship. So they had to, I mean, this was expensive linoleum, right? So why would they suddenly mm-hmm. decide to put expensive carpeting over the top of it? You know, there's lots of little anomalies like that. Dozens and dozens and dozens of little anomalies like that. And, uh, you know, it, you know, the, like I said, the full story is in my book, but it, it's, it's an intriguing story. Um, and of course it was so deliberately, you know, I, 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 I don't even think it hit an iceberg, to be honest. I, I, <laughs> I know that sounds utterly preposterous, but, you know, I give my reasons for that. I don't think it hit an iceberg. I think they steered it near to an iceberg to give the impression that it did. But mm. there was either, the, you know, people talk of explosions and things like that. So, uh, and also there was a, one of the coal bunkers was on fire right from the beginning. They never put the fire out in a coal bunker. So maybe it was the coal bunker that caused the damage. We don't know for sure. But again, it's, it's anomaly after anomaly after anomaly. Um, you know, the one thing's for sure, even if my conjecture isn't correct, is that the official story is the biggest load of crap you've ever heard in your life, basically. Yeah, and what is it about the propeller also? It has the 401 stamp yeah. on it? Yeah, again, it's a bit tenuous, this one. I know what you mean. Yeah, um, well, when the, when it had its accident and, and it lost its propeller blade, Titanic, this is Olympic, of course, I'm talking about, because that the ship was originally Olympic. Um, when it went back to Belfast, they didn't have a spare propeller, so they took one off Titanic. Now, Titanic's bill number was 401. Olympic's bill number was 400. Um, so, it, they pinched one of the, uh, the, the Titanic, which was still under construction, they pinched its propeller, which had a 401 stamp on it. And then when James Cameron found the wreck and they went underwater and they, and they filmed you could clearly see the 401 stamp on the propeller. It's not conclusive proof because they could have put a propeller on at some point on the Titanic again that was 401, but it's, it's sort of circumstantial evidence, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, didn't the Olympic, I guess in quotations, keep running? Isn't it still in operation now? Not, in, not now, no. It, it, went, it went on for 25 years, yeah. Now, 25 years after. Yeah, it was scrapped in 1937. Uh, but okay. uh, several, again, several uh, mariners that I spoke to, several seafaring people said, if uh, any ship that has sustained the damage that the Olympics sustained in those accidents, uh, there is no way on earth that it could have carried on uh, going to and fro across the Atlantic for 25 more years. Because the Atlantic is a pretty, you know, it's a difficult ocean. It's very, very rough at times, and the battering that ships take, just it's impossible. It just could not have survived it. So that there is no way that that could have been the Olympic. It had to have been Titanic, the original Titanic that, that did that uh, until it was scrapped in 1937. Yeah, yeah lots right. of anomalies. Uh, there's a third uh, sh- uh, ship also called the Britannica. Britannic, yeah. There was 
Olympic Britannic. first, Titanic second, Britannic third. And uh, Britannic wasn't built until after the Titanic sank or the Olympic sank, whichever way you want to put it. But yeah, they were all oh, okay. almost identical ships. All the three of them, yeah. And uh, yeah, the Britannic sank as well. The Britannic sank in the First World War. It was, it was used as a hospital ship in the First World War. And that's something the AGNC uh, near Greece uh, was torpedoed, apparently. Oh. Hmm. Uh, yeah, can you speak about uh, when the Atlantic or when the Titanic got sunk about the other ships that were hmm. in the area? Yeah, sure. Yeah, that was, and this is very contentious, this, and there are a lot of eyewitness reports that never get told, okay, and which I have dug out because I spent a considerable amount of time in public libraries in England uh, looking at contemporary newspaper reports. Because I always find that, um, that that's the place where you're going to find the most accurate information about what went on at that time. So I, I dug out a lot of interesting stuff from, from those places. Now, it, it turns out that there were a lot of ships in the area when Titanic sank. A lot. I'm not just talking two or three. I'm talking maybe five or six. Um, oh, wow. And it, yeah. And, uh, and yet it was allowed to sink. There is a, a, a deposition from a, a Canadian guy, a Canadian doctor who was on a ship whose name escapes at the moment. Uh, but again, it's all in the book. And he said that their ship passed so close to the sinking Titanic at the time it was sinking that they could look down from their cabin windows and see the people in the lifeboats down below, and yet the ship never stopped. Right? That was just one incident. Wow. There's also reports that the, that the Titanic was being on its maiden voyage, or the Olympic Titanic, um, was being followed by two British naval warships. Now, why that would be, the speculation is that there was something like a billion dollars of gold aboard it, um, which they have made several attempts to retrieve over the years and they've never been successful as far as we know. Okay, so it was being tailed by two British warships. Um, there were, there are reports of other ships, passengers on the Titanic in the lifeboat saying that they saw several of the ships much, much closer than the, the ship that actually rescued them, which was Carpathian, which had to come from about 57 miles away or something when it, when it got the distress signal, uh, which took nearly four hours. Uh, you know, to, to not that fast, you know, 57 miles at sea is a long way, especially in those days. Um, mm-hmm. but the, the, the big contentious one is, is the Californian, which was, Another ship that was owned by J.P. Morgan, which I believe was actually meant to be standing by as a rescue ship. But something happened, miscommunications, the wireless operator on the California, um, I believe should have stayed up all night waiting for this message from Titanic, this distress message from Titanic. Um, he switched off his wireless at, at midnight and went to bed. So the Titanic was frantically Radio, radioing for help. Nobody was near enough to help. Um, apart from the ship just mentioned, they were ignoring her. But I believe that the Californian was put there specifically by Morgan to save most of the people on board because I, I do believe he didn't intend to kill everybody. Um, he just intended to kill those three guys that were mentioned before. 
And obviously, mm-hmm. if they weren't mm-hmm. going to die naturally, then there would have been somebody on board who was going to take care of them, basically. Um, and it's really strange that in any, all the Titanic stories, none of those people actually attempted to escape. Nobody knows what became of them. And yet all the other famous people, there's a little story around them for what happened to them. Not those. So again, it's very suspicious. But yeah, the Californian, hmm. I believe, was, was, was meant to be there to, to save the passengers on the Titanic, but the message didn't get through. That's why so many died. Um, and I don't think Morgan intended that. Uh, it might have been do a monster. You think, uh, do you think some of the other ships were there to see through that the Titanic sank so that way they could for sure know that they could claim that, that and, and, you know, kind of like, uh, the criminal returning to the scene of the crime. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to see, to see what they cause, you know, kind of like a. Sure. Weird... Yeah. I, I do. Um, and I think it's also possible that, that the Titanic was sunk by something like, uh, uh, a warship with a battering ram and that, that same as happened to the Olympic, you know, that kind of thing. Maybe mm. it was that or, or an icebreaker or something like that with a, you know, something that could uh, break through the steel and sink the ship. Because certainly I don't believe that an iceberg could have sunk it. I, I really don't because, um, the, the damage, the known damage to, to the Titanic on the bottom of the ocean, I keep calling it the Titanic, but yeah, you, you know which ship I mean, the one that sat on the uh-huh. bottom of the ocean. Um, yeah. Known damage to it is very, very strange. Now, it's a 300, apparently it's got a 300 foot gash in the steel, one, one inch thick steel plate. And that gash goes something like five or six feet into the ship. But yet it's only about four inches wide. Now that's a very strange shaped hole for ice to make, isn't it? You know, what kind of ice protrusion could cause damage that shape that is six foot wide, but it's six foot long, um, and four inches wide? You know, that would have to be a very, very strange outcrop of ice to create that damage. And would, if there was a piece of ice that shape, would it not break off? You know, uh, I mean, ice is very, mm-hmm. very strong when it's compacted, but I'm pretty sure it's not strong enough to, to produce damage like that. Uh, you know, and again, it's not through my, steel. Yeah, it's not my conjecture. This, I mean, this is this is main, mainstream stuff. You know, this is like actually mm-hmm. what happened to it. You know, so. And as far as the gold, why would they put so much gold on a on a ship that they were purposely trying to sink? Well, it's a good question. I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I'm just mere, merely repeating the rumors. That were abounding at the time, but there were, you know, it, it yeah. actually said this in some contemporary newspapers. It was believed that there was a billion dollars of gold on board. I don't know, unless the people who put the gold on board weren't aware of the plot. I, I understand. Mm. Uh, yeah, or maybe that's a good cover. Like, hey, there is a bunch of gold on there. Why would we sink that? Yeah, uh, yeah, good point. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. valid point. Yeah, <laughs> valid yeah. point. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, is there, is there anything else, uh, to the story? Uh, maybe an aftermath, uh, of, of kind of a- anything interesting after the fact? Yeah. Um, definitely. Uh, the Carpathia, which was the one that picked up all the survivors. Um, again, it's, it's just kind of weird anomalies. Um, probably 705 people out of the 2200 and, Three on board survived. 
Um, now, the Carpathia, interestingly, this was a ship that, that actually picked up all the lifeboats and provided in the lifeboats that had to steam for four hours to get there, uh, by which time all the people who were in the sea had obviously frozen to death because, you know, um, you know, people, most people didn't drown, people believe. They, they actually froze to death because the sea was, oh, the sea was 28 degrees. Yeah. So it was, yeah. If, if it had not been salt water, it would have been frozen. You know, so the salt, the salt in the water lowers the freezing point, but it was 28 mm. degrees the water that night. So most people froze to death and within about 15 minutes. It's called hydrogen. Okay. So I'm getting off the point a little bit. So this Carpathia was actually weirdly, Fitted out like a hospital ship, and it had seven doctors on board on quite a small ship. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so that's another. I, I, I don't have an answer to it. I just, it's just a. It's just an anomaly. Um, now the inquiries. There was a, an American, but there were two inquiries afterwards. The American one came first, and then the British one. And these were widely, even in the newspapers, even in the contemporary newspapers, they, they accused them of being whitewashed. You know. Um, no, there were no witnesses called from the passenger contingent at all. Um, no witnesses were allowed to give personal evidence and they were strictly forbidden from speaking or to give simple answers to direct questions with no elaboration. Okay. Um, and when questioned by the press, Captain Lord, now Captain Lord was the captain of the Californian, which was supposed to be the rescue ship, I believe. He said when he was questioned, and a quote, I am not allowed to give out state secrets. You will have to ask those in the office. Hmm. And what a strange thing to say. State secrets? What? Yeah. Yeah. And then when the surviving crew members got back to England about two weeks later, they were all illegally detained overnight in a holding pen in Plymouth Dockyard without access to legal or union representation, and they were coerced into signing a document that they believed was the Official Secrets Act. Now, the Official Secrets Act was uh, drawn up before the World War One, before World War One, and basically it covered any kind of uh, anything that wanted to be covered up by the government. They, they covered it with this Official Secrets Act. So you, you, if you spoke about anything that they declared it came under that act, then it was an automatic jail. Hmm. Okay. So they believed that that was the official secret act that they had to sign, uh, which prevented them from speaking out in public. So if they'd gone to the newspapers and told the newspapers what they knew, they would have gone to jail. Has, has anybody later done like a deathbed confession type thing where they, uh, you know, let out information about how it could have been false, or is there any of those stories? There, that there are, are but not, not quite so you know, not quite so concrete. If you like. There are there are one there are there are one or two. For example, I spoke when I was doing all this research. I was, I spoke to a guy who was the great nephew of the most senior surviving officer, and he'd written a book um, telling all the secrets that his great uncle told him before he died, and. Uh, you know, so I got some information from there, and it was quite interesting. He never actually completely opened up, but he was actually alluding to certain things that you could kind of read between the lines. Because even so, even at that point in time, if he had spoken out, you know, he would never have, um, you know, it, 
you know, something bad would have happened to him. So uh, it couldn't be totally explicit when he was talking to his great nephew, um, but he, he certainly made some allusions to the fact that it was all a cover up and all a whitewash, uh, which which makes interesting reading. Um, you know, yeah. And, and again, going back to the iceberg situation, uh, did did the ship really hit an iceberg? Well, there were only five eyewitnesses to it, believe it or not. One was uh, Murdoch, who was the first officer. There were two lookouts in the crow's nest, the helmsman, and one other ordinary seaman. And significantly, Murdoch actually committed suicide. You know, this is one of the senior officers. He allegedly committed suicide in the aftermath of the collision, leaving as the only witnesses four lower-class guys, you know. And how easy would it have been in those days to keep them quiet through threats to their, fam- their, their and the family's future livelihoods, you know, or even worse, you know, um, very easy, I would suggest. So, you know, and again, at the, at the American Inquiry, the, um, one of the lookouts, uh, Red Fleet, he was called, very, very interesting. He'd obviously been told not to say anything. And when you read his, uh, his testimony, the American inquiry, it's obvious, so obvious he's trying to cover stuff up and scared of telling the truth. Um, it makes very interesting reading, actually. Uh, so, there's, again, there's, there's hundreds of these anomalies. There really are loads and loads of them. And again, I cover them all in the book. Excellent. So, uh, let's do one final question here, a, a little, uh, a little more conspiratorial. Uh, you've done stuff about bloodlines and, uh, you know, the Illuminati and the New World Order and stuff. So I kind of brought this up earlier with, uh, the whole Titanic story of Georgia, Atlantis, uh, Mount Olympus, the iceberg, the white star. Uh, there's several different things in the story that all connect into uh, like an ancient Atlantics motif or that connects into these NWO Illuminati type people. Do you think even the fact that there's a twin ship, the whole twin dynamic that's in, uh, ancient, mo- uh, mythology and everything. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do you, do you think that maybe it, it's all just an allegory to, yeah. Well, show show who did it, or is there yeah. any type of conspiratorial type of thing that you you have a theory on about that or anything? Well, I don't actually, and, it, and, it, and it's a really interesting question that you ask. But as you mentioned, it, yeah, definitely, I, I can see that connection. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, they, these people do this all the time, don't they? They, they make allusions to ancient yeah. mythology, and uh, you know, and, and even. Something that you didn't mention there, which I thought of as you were speaking, and that is Titanic. You know, the Titans from Greek mythology. Yeah, Titan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Titans and the, I don't know, there's a war between the Titans and the, what would you uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you, you, you could well, very well be right, actually. Uh, it could all be an, al- an allegory. Uh, but it's not something that I've covered and, uh, yeah, I wish I had. <laughs> 
<laughs> I will look into yeah. that a bit more, actually. Because yeah, you should really check that fun. out and see if there's any yeah. more uh, interesting stuff that kind of connects into there. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because there there is a lot there that all connects into that area. Uh, I, I do a lot of research on something called the Box Saga, uh, which talks about uh, Atlantis being in the northern part of the world uh, at the North Pole. And it being part of like Helsinki, Finland, and kind of like Ireland and England and uh, Greenland and all the lands in that area. And maybe like a chain of islands that go down through the Atlantic uh, that reach all the way down to South America. And, and through that connection, you get to Atlantis and you get to the Giants and you get to, you know, all these different. And Georgia being Georgia, the country uh, that's north of the. Caucasus Mountains and being Mount Ararat and Mount Hermon are both part of the mountain range and from Georgia. Yeah. So you get a lot of connections to giants and uh, all those different things. And it also connects into maritime trade uh, as being Atlantis was the uh, first ones to start this whole uh, trading system. And they, you know, they took over the Mediterranean and the Black Sea and all these other connotations. So it, it's really an interesting story of, of even Titans and ice giants. And, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. it really fits into the whole motif. And as, as you alluded to, they do kind of predetermine these things and they, they mesh it around, uh, you know, yeah. these Greek gods or Egyptian gods. And stuff of that manner. I, I just thought it was an interesting connection. It is. That, uh, it is. And, nobody yeah. else ever has brought up that I have heard of before. So no, me neither. But yeah, that, that, that's <laughs> no, seriously, that, that's a great question, and, and, and it gives them more research on that. All right. Uh, well, excellent. Uh, thank you for joining us today, John. Uh, can you uh, want? Do you have a website or anything you can give to people, or is there anywhere they can find you to? Purchase your books and yeah, well, if, uh, if they go on Amazon.com and search, uh, just do a search within Amazon itself for my name, which is John Hamer, H A M E R. You will wonder my author page where all my books can be seen. And also, uh, I do have a website, yeah, and it is the falsification. It's not the. It's just falsificationofhistory.co.uk. Falsificationofhistory.co.uk. All right, excellent. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I, I hope all goes well with your new book. Thank you. Uh, look forward to seeing that one come out. Uh, I bid you adieu. Thank you. <laughs> you take good care. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.